Welcome to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. My name is Sam Clements and this is the podcast that celebrates films with a 90 minute or less runtime. In each episode, a guest will select a film and join me to add to our ongoing fictional film festival. Today, we're joined by Trisha Tuttle, former festival director of the BFI London Film Festival and the newly appointed director of the Berlin International Film Festival from the 2025 edition. Hello, Trisha. Hi, Sam. It's great to be on the show. I'm a massive admirer of it. So um, it's, a, it's a real treat for me. Oh, that's so nice to hear you say that. I mean, likewise, I'm, I'm such a big fan of your work that you've done at the BFI. I've attended so many events that you've put on over the years, you know, really brilliant programming. And, and also, I'm a bit daunted. You know, you have headed up major film festivals and here we are trying to pull together this fictional film festival via a podcast. I'm truly, I'm truly in awe. Yeah. Well, do you know what? I think um, length doesn't doesn't always matter, but one time it really matters is when you're scheduling a film festival. Um, it is so difficult to make sure you have enough time for Q and A sessions, for introductions. Um, so. The idea of scheduling a 90 minutes or less film festival sounds like heaven to me. Think of the admin. If every film was 90 <laughs> minutes, let's just say every film was the same length, the spreadsheet, the grid, the planning, it would be so easy, right? It would be a thing of beauty. Absolutely. And you know what? Films are like, honestly, the the idea of having any 90 minute films in a film festival right now feels really luxurious because so many films are like expanding soon it's going to be 90 minutes is the length of the short films that we're getting because they're just <laughs> getting longer and longer and longer. There is a runtime creep, I think. But television is also getting longer. Like watching those big HBO shows. I was watching The Last of Us. Some of the episodes of that are 80 minutes long. You know, they're barely able to fit into our film festival. No, I know. It's crazy. I'm really down for those like extreme long cinema experiences, you know, La Flore or something that happy hour that go on, you know, well beyond the runtime. But when something that's intended to be seen in that sort of typically 90 minutes, two hour context goes into three hours, I quite often will just think, did we need, did we need that whole, I'm not going to name any names here, but in the last year I have seen quite a few of those projects that people say big punt projects from big directors, which there's so much that's beautiful in them and so much that's really, really, um, you know, terrific filmmaking, but it just, if they sculpted down a bit, would they'd be stronger films. So I'm all for tightening things up a little bit. You mentioned earlier, you know, it was sort of 10 years of, of working at the, the BFI and, and I was wondering how you how you got into exhibition and film curation in, in the first place, because it's, uh, you know, it's obviously very uh, something that's very relevant to this podcast. Well, I did an undergraduate film degree um, in North Carolina, where I'm from, um, and I was it was both a, a sort of theory and practice, a little bit, a lot of film history, a lot of film 
theory, but some chance to make films. And I realized, I thought I wanted to be a filmmaker. And I realized through that course that I was more interested in exhibition and more suited to exhibition. Um, so I had a bit of a gap, but then I um, decided to do a master's degree. And the program that I really fortuitously came upon was the BFI had a master's degree in film and television. And it was a short-lived, probably six, seven years maximum. Um, and it was accredited by Birkbeck University of London. And it was the most extraordinary course. It was um, run by Colin McCabe and Laura Mulvey. And they would either lecture themselves every morning or bring one of their friends, a filmmaker, a TV maker, an archivist in to do a lecture for us. And then in the afternoons, they'd pull uh, great treasures from the National Film and Television Archive, and we'd watch them in one of the screening rooms at Stephen Street. So that was the most incredible experience that I got to have. And there were only 14 people in each year. Um, really interesting people who had different aspirations. Some became filmmakers, some became curators, um, some became academics, some went on to work in exhibition someone went on to be a television producer. So it really was people who ended up in different parts of the industry. But one of the great things, aside from getting to see the work that we saw and speak to the incredible curators and minds that who did lectures for us was at the end of that, we had to do um, a training placement. And I, um, met the festivals team, Adrian Wooden used to run the London Film Festival, Sandra Hebron um, was his deputy and shortly after became the artistic director of London Film Festival. And I straight out of my MA went to work with them as a volunteer and then uh, developed a, a relationship with them and ended up um, after a few years of coming back every year to work on the festivals, um, having two more really interesting defined jobs for London Film Festival and what is now BFI Flair and used to be um, London Lesbian and Gay Film Festival. So after a number of years working with Sandra, I became the programmer of London Lesbian and Gay Film Festival, and I was the events programmer for the London Film Festival. And from that grew like an absolute passion for film festivals and an addiction to um, film festivals. Um, and I stayed there for a few years and it was different it's always difficult isn't it to sort of build this portfolio career where you're like working for three months and then you have to find some work and then you come back um and to do something else and that was the way I worked for a number of years for festivals and festivals can be they're such a privilege and such a pleasure but they're also like there's a lot of precarious work you have to have short quite often have short-term contracts and you have to fill gaps um i think people come back because they're so passionate about them and they're so passionate about working in that environment and sharing that work with some um, with filmmakers but yeah that was my that was my start in exhibition and film festivals oh, wow that sounds great and uh, it's uh, i always find with sort of film academia and, and things there there are are very few courses that look at exhibition and it's always sort of like the the hidden secret you know that is so vital to the industry but isn't sort of it is taught in some places of course but it isn't taught as widely as other film practices i do feel like that that is a shame but but that sounds like a wonderful course that you were on it was such a good course and you know the independent cinema office has a really great 
course in exhibition as well too that they've run run for a long time but in for film programming um the national film and television school i'm going to get a plug in here has a really great curation masters that sandra hebron actually runs so there are those courses but you're right um you know they're not as abundant as you know especially if you're like 16 to 18 I think learning that there is this world out out there aside from just you know the being a director being an actor those are things that I think young people know about but what they don't know about is you can work in a cinema you can work for a distributor you could work for a film festival like there's this sort of rich world that I wish um, more people had access to from an early age um, to dream, dream big because we need that in exhibition too we need big big passionate dreamers who come in and sort of help us bring new audiences to to cinema right now absolutely i think it's hugely hugely important i uh, i think i learned most about exhibition from working in a cinema myself I can highly recommend working in a cinema folks it's a, it's a film education into its own yeah i'm a, i'm a, I, I worked in a cinema as well too so i'm with you there i sold popcorn um, tickets, everything in a little, a little, a beautiful little cinema that is sadly now closed in Charlotte, North Carolina, called the Manor Theatre. Lovely cinema. Tricia, for today's podcast, I set you a bit of homework and uh, asked you to pick an under ninety minute film for us to discuss. How did you tackle this homework? Well, I knew that I really wanted to try to find an underappreciated gem. You know, some of my favorite films, I looked and did find that they were within the, the time frame, but I felt like maybe that people were more aware of them. So I did the sort of scanning time um, times, wrote down all my favorite films, and then really, really focused on trying to find something that I feel like should be... Um, um, revisited by a new generation of um, of film goers and something that I feel um, hasn't disappeared from the conversation at all, but um, that could be more uh, reappraised and it continued to uh, be revitalized. And I picked, uh, dot, 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 I picked Karen Adler's Under the Skin, um, which is such a wonderful film from 1997. And that's right around the time that I moved to the UK. I was doing my master's um, at the time. And I just remember going to see it in cinema and being really blown away by it. And um, I've continued to revisit it uh, through the years. And it's it's something that's not diminished for me at all in how strong and singular um, it is. And, you know, it's, it's such a shame that Karen didn't go on to have a huge career after this in film um, because she's so talented. Um, but of course, it also uh, was a debut, not just for Karen, but it was a big film debut for Sam Samantha Morton and producer Kate Ogborn, who have gone on both to make extraordinary work. So I really, really wanted to revisit this and talk about it and deep dive in, into it today with you. Under the Skin, a film by Karen Adler. In her first major film role, Samantha Morton plays Iris, a vulnerable young woman whose life is turned upside down. Her mother, Rita Tushingham, has been given only weeks to live, and she feels increasingly distant from her happily married and heavily pregnant older sister, Rose, Claire Rushbrook. Unable to deal with her grief and jealousy, Iris ditches her job, her flat, and her boyfriend, and prowls the streets, looking for love in all the wrong places. 
There we go. Back of the DVD. DVD is quite good, actually. It's also got a short film by Karen Adler, um, which um, I guess maybe is available on YouTube, but it's just nice that Fever. it's been preserved. Yeah, Fever. That's really great to know it's on the DVD. I'm going to order it because I haven't seen Fever in many years. But it's um, it's great that it's on there, too, because that short film was made out of the BFI's new director's scheme, which was run in the 90s. And that's actually how Karen ended up working with Kate Ogborn, who was the producer. Kate had been overseeing new directors um, and worked um, not as the producer on Fever, but as I think she was exec producer um, on Fever. Um, and she and and Karen really got on. And, um, and so when it came... When um, the BFI and Channel 4 at the time, there was no film for at the time, but Channel 4 and BFI decided that they had really sort of underserved and um, female filmmakers, then they um, created a slate of films that were going to be to produce uh, new work from female filmmakers. Kate got the opportunity to produce this film and, and work with Karen. So it emerged out of, um, out of the same place that that short film did. It's always great when you hear that you know, the system can work, you know, the short film leads on to the feature and there's the support, you know, for the creatives to do, to make that jump. And, uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad they did. Your um, recommendation of this film was my first watch. So I'm a fairly recent viewer to this, uh, you know, whereas you, you actually got to see it at the cinema. That must've been so exciting at the time. Yeah, it is. It is. It was, it was really exciting. And I think one of the reasons it was exciting for me is because it felt so sort of arrestingly fresh um it's a female filmmaker telling a, a story about a woman that i didn't feel like i'd seen very often a story about it's really about grief and it's really about the strange ways that in individual ways that people respond to grief of course iris responds to the death of her mother um, by going on a bit of a you know sort of period of abandon reckless sexual encounters alienates her friends, um, particularly to this story, she alienates her sister. Um, I mean, the film's also a film about motherhood, sisterhood, daughterhood as well. And that triangle at the center of the film, um, Iris is the main character, but also Rose is her sister, played by Claire Rushbrook. And Rita Tushingham has a really nice um, meaty cameo as their mother who dies early in the film. Spoilers alert but yes she 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 dies and it sends um iris on this like propulsive journey um that is is really about her responding to the grief of having lost her mother i mean i didn't feel like i'd seen a film like that um i mean i i was always on the hunt at the time for films from female directors anyway and i spent a lot of time as a teenager scouring video stores and i was really lucky to have a great video store called Vizart video where they were it was so beautifully curated and they would always like find interesting films and you know Films by Monica Troy, Lizzie Borden, the way I discovered Jane Campion, Alison McLean, you know, these sort of Claudia Veal, I mean, these really exciting filmmakers um, sort of that I discovered through my video store. But, and and of course, at this time or, or shortly after, there were some really interesting um, filmmakers, sort of emer female filmmakers emerging. I mean, I remember Lynn Stopkovich's Kiss around this time, which is also a really confronting film about a kind of female sexuality that I hadn't seen on screen. Not long after was Catherine Breyer's Romance. Um, so there was something happening um, that was super exciting, but it felt 
surprisingly original and and so unusual. I mean, there's some things in the film that I don't think I've ever had ever seen on screen, like, you know, or very often seen on screen. There's a, this really unsettling, but well done phone sex scene in the film. Um, And also uh, sort of female masturbation was pretty unusual um, at the time. So lots of sort of confronting transgressive elements that I found very exciting in in terms of filmmaking and storytelling and exploring a, a type of female subjectivity that I hadn't seen very often. We're watching this, talking about this now, over 20 years after it was made. It still feels really fresh and really bold. And I think, you know, maybe maybe you see similar filmmaking techniques now on, you know, maybe some sort of like, you know, trendy TV shows, handheld camera, you know, filming in real locations. But that's that's sort of a, something that I really do associate with, like, independent cinema and the 90s in in britain there was lots of bold filmmaking you know sort of going going on and 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 this really brought me back you know to it reminded me of things like early danny boyle films and uh early lynn ramsey films you know and and it was nice to be back in the 90s you know british independent film was groundbreaking i think definitely and out of that um short film scheme like you know other filmmakers who made work there went on to make really interesting work in the future. Like Andrew Codding also had a a short in that new director scheme. I'm not sure if Len Ramsey was part of that particular scheme, but she was, as you said, she was emerging at the same time and made Ratcatcher in 1999. Um, Great film from um, Koki Gedrick called Stella Does Tricks, which is sort of underappreciated now. Richard Fietniowski, Shane Meadows, you know, like all of these really interesting filmmakers emerging. And I, I think it's not just the female filmmakers, but a lot of filmmakers making the kind of auteur, um, writer-director work that we saw in that period, I don't think really were supported um, to to continue their careers. But it's certainly true of the, the female filmmakers there. I mean, Patty McDonald as well with Beautiful Thing was around that same time. It was really exciting time for British cinema. I mean, I'm excited about British cinema now as well, too, so I don't want to um, to just to to suggest it's not it's not still happening but there was something going on there that was very um it it came out of a more experimental tradition of filmmaking and i think you see that as well in karen's film you know there is it, i i don't know if you saw this sam but i felt like as seeing after sun i felt like there were some resonances with after sun i mean the two things it's not about the same thing but it's about it's after sun is also a film about trauma and grief and it uses this sort of elliptical sometimes collage like style to construct narrative and story and what i love in this one of my favorite scenes in um in under the skin is very early in the film it's about 10 minutes in and it's the first time that iris has a sexual encounter and she's in a movie theater and she is awoken by she's fallen asleep at the end of the film and she's awoken by a stranger who played by stuart townsend she instantly um starts talking to him and there's an attraction between them and they have sex in a corridor and it's such a beautiful scene i mean it's sort of shot um, and I, I know that um, Wong Kar Wai was a visual reference for the filmmakers, and it's sort of shot like Chunking Express with these sort of neon reds and dark shadows playing across the characters. But even though it feels very explicit, it is not 
very explicit. It's a scene of two people having sex, but you really own the way that it's edited. It is very much, um, it's very evocative and elliptical. So you have this sort of voiceover that tells you that they had sex rather than seeing anything happen. And it's Iris's narrating um, the sexual encounter. But it's also cut with um, scenes from Iris's mother's coffin being prepared for um, cremation and, and then ultimately going into the incinerator. And it's the way that it works on you is so powerful because it creates this sort of place where sexual attraction and sort of animal sexual attraction is very linked with grief, which is the central theme of the film. So it's such an elegant way to introduce the idea that her grief is, her response to grief is going through this sort of transgressive sexual period. Um, I love that sequence in the film. To go back to After Sun really briefly is I feel that the film creates space for the viewer to really bring their own experiences and their own meaning in the way that After Sun does. Like everyone imprints their own um, reading, imprints their own life onto both of these films, I think. Absolutely. I, I didn't think about the After Sun connection, but now you're talking about it and you, know, you think about the personal uh how personal both films sort of feel i don't know if uh the, you know it's the same for karen adler in, in terms of the you know the, the reason behind the film compared to after sun but you know, you really get to to bond with your central characters and you're put in their shoes a really extreme time in their lives and you know both are handled in very different ways uh but yeah, yeah. i think that's a really that'd be a really interesting sort of pairing or, or maybe like the basis of a film season um you know to to, to, to explore that some more that scene 10 minutes in the one you're referring to was so bold and that was the one that really made me sort of sit up in my chair and you know like seeing that cross cutting i've never seen a you know a, a a coffin going into an incinerator before you know like that's quite a, a big visual leap i feel it's quite bold and then of course you know cross cutting with the sex scene it puts you absolutely in iris's head at that point absolutely but also that is the first time as i said that you hear that you you see that narration technique that's used throughout the film and um i know karen and karen adler and kate um ogborn have talked about some of the challenges in getting the film made were that the narration is in the script and i think that, that they've said that lots of the um, financiers and some of the actors that they were talking to about the role of Iris were really nervous about how explicit the film would be because the voiceover narration is quite explicit. But it's a really, um, I, I think it's such a beautiful way to show a sort of transgressive female sexuality because it's not exploitative or voyeuristic at all it's a really about her experience of, of the, the sex um but I, I think it was a challenge when they were trying to cast the roles as well there's a great story that Kate Ogborn told me about when they were trying to cast it and they'd really, you know, talked to a few actors, a few good actors. Lots of people were nervous about playing Iris and they were aware of Sam, Sam's work because she'd been in television, um, some rather big television from when she was sort of 13, 14, but she was a 19 year old and came in very late when they, you know, hadn't found their Iris and did a reading in the BFI basement and she read the phone sex scene and Kate Ogborn said she and Karen and the casting director were just like lit on fire by how extraordinary um that her her reading of this instantly how much she got Iris and Kate talks about the fact that Sam like 
just knew Sam was going to be something really major and special. And she had a real physicality that she hadn't seen in, in, in many actors, female actors at the time, because there was a more sort of restrained or politeness, maybe through training or the types of roles they were being offered. But she said Sam was like, almost like physically moving through the space and almost prowling the space and just had a, a real physical presence. And you definitely see that in the film as well, too. I think the voiceover acts as an interesting contrast with Iris's character on screen. When she's interacting with someone, she's often quite abrupt, very forceful, very you know opinionated. And, and she she sort of is, is always the yin to the other's yang. If you think about her scenes with her mother and, and with her sister. Uh, but in, in her voiceover, it feels sort of deeper than what we see on on camera through the visuals um, and, and more eloquent in a way. You know, I, I, I thought I thought that was so good, sort of how they layered the voiceover um, uh, over that character. And it gave her an extra dimension. You're, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's a sort of almost a petulance to her behavior. And then there's this sort of poetry to the narration as well, too. Um, and, you know, I think you'd get, I really don't want to give away the end, but you really get the sort of those two things come together really beautifully in the, the final parts of the film. When I was small, my mother was everything to me. I thought she was beautiful and I wanted to be like her. Promise myself to treat myself and visit a nearby town. My mother loved flowers and her favourite flowers were roses, so she called my sister Rose. Huh? Iris, Mum gave it to me. She gave it to me before she died. I was going to tell you, but I didn't want to hurt you. Iris! And she called me Iris. There's quite a lot of writing about the film from the time, which is now online, you know, contemporary uh, reviews. Lots of people sort of criticizing a lack of a, a narrative here. But the narrative is is Iris's journey for me. It's it's her yeah. going through this traumatic period uh, whilst not, you know, like she's not going on a quest, uh, you know, but it's it, a quest is her inner soul. Yeah, and I know I totally agree. And I think um, it's not a film with an elaborate plot. It's a film about someone coming to terms with her immense grief and also the ways. And, and I think this is where it also feels really unique and original uh, is that it's a film about the ways that the death of a mother changes the relationship that you have, you know, the, 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 the relationship you have with yourself. And I think it's telling that um, Iris's sister is pregnant um, and the film actually it's not not based on a book but it's inspired by um, or response to Estella Weldon's mother Madonna Hoare um, and I know that Karen worked a little bit with Weldon at, as a script consultant early in developing the film but the film is it doesn't belabor this at all but there's a really interesting triangle there between um, Rita Tushingham's character Claire and Sam's characters and you know, the, the sort of the relation, how the relationship shift after the death of her mother is is really, really, really interesting um, and not something that I think at the time we were seeing as much in cinema. It felt natural as well. Like, I, I love how Rita Sushingham acts differently in front of her two daughters in front of them in that scene. Yeah. Um, you know, they're having very different conversations and she's very good at pivoting, you know, to be the mother for that child at, at that point. That felt so naturalistic. And then, you know, the, the, the sibling relationship in the film, I was seeing a lot of just, you know, reality and, and things I could relate to uh, in that. It's so well played. I think Sam Morton is incredible in the film, but but she's, she's also incredible at acting 
acting off of Claire Rushbrook, um, who is that great, you know, older, a bit more stable in her life. You know, she's got it a bit more together than, than Iris does. And, uh, and yeah, they're wonderful together. Yeah, they are really, really wonderful together. And um, I read uh, or I heard um, the filmmakers say that they what they really loved about Claire was that she is a real listener. Um, and you can see that in the film as an actor she's a real listener and she's sort of reacting to that the Sam's performance and there's a great scene in a train station um, with, between the two of them where where Iris goes into a fit of rage and she pulls Rose's hair and it's beautifully acted scene it's an absolutely gorgeously acted scene um the other thing just to go back to Rita Tushingham because I think it's what's interesting too is the filmmakers talk a lot about um female photographers who inspired uh, you know they I've heard them talk about um Wong Kar Wai as a visual reference but then other than that it's really the inspiration and the the reference points as they were building the film were artists like Nan Golden and Cindy Sherman but they've also said Rita Tushingham they had been watching and talking about early 60s British cinema and Rita sort of encodes that in a in the film in a really interesting way things like uh, a taste of honey the reader sort of brings this sort of metatextual meaning to to the film as well too and this relationship with a a long um history of british cinema and in terms of i guess the the context is for us to view it does feel like a passing of the torch you know this stalwart incredible british actor you know actually appearing in a in a in a director's feature debut and i think that happened quite a bit in the 90s there would be sort of one established name in a yeah. director's feature debut i always think of bob hoskins in shane meadows early work and yeah. you know it's just sort of like their seal of approval on this new voice yeah no absolutely she is there she's encoding the classic british cinema i really like how she's also used throughout the film through sort of visions or flashbacks or dream sequences over the phone and i think you see her sort of briefly and some sort of uh, when when iris is alone it's pushing the filmmaking forward and it's uh, you know it's some sort of experimental flourishes there uh, but yeah she's 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 always felt even if she's not on screen Rita Tushingham. Going back to the look, it's interesting that Wong Kar Wai is a, a reference because you definitely see that. But um, I think Barry Aykroyd, the, the director of uh, photography on this film, who's now a big name, has worked on Catherine Bigelow's films, you know, very much, you know, established here. One of his earlier uh, films, you know, gets a lot out of um, what was probably quite a low budget to shoot this film. Like, it looks gorgeous, the way it's captured these real locations. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, he went on to do um, Zero Dark Thirty with Bigelow and also, you know, huge films with Paul Greengrass. But this is a super low budget film, 25 day shoot in Liverpool, and it looks so extraordinary. It's so beautifully lit. I um, mean, there's a grain that is absolutely gorgeous as well, too. Um, I've read the filmmakers talk about how special it was to work with him um, for some really emotionally difficult and complex scenes for the actors, particularly for Sam. I mean, she was 20 years old when she was filming this, and there's a lot that's very confrontational. It was time pre-intimacy coordinators, I think they were really trying to create an atmosphere on set that was safe for her and quite often would have a sort of closed or, you know, sort of smaller um, crew on set. And I've heard them talk about how wonderful he was in that context as well to just sort of creating a safe space and an environment. And, you know, it, it's his camera is very intimate in the film as well, too. So it's yeah, I think it's it's a real, really beautiful early work from Barry. 
Also, the, the the way the production has has chosen their locations. Like, I love Sam's bedsit. As horrible as it is, it says so much about their character. You know, it's barely furnished. There's decaying flowers around from the mother's funeral. The bed, you know, is 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 just sort of you know just a unsheeted mattress uh, for a fair bit. And um, it, you know, it's it's like stepping into that bedsit is 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 her brain on screen. The sister's house is such a you know contrast to the bed that you know it's got it's got rooms it's all white it's, it's pristine you know it's it's they you know, yes. it's, a, it's a reasonably established household. <laughs> no, you're you're absolutely right. The the contrast between those two spaces says so much about their approach to the world, and I think that's a really nice dichotomy in the film too. It starts with the way that the mother parents the two of them, and spe- as you pointed out, speaks to them in very in very distinct ways. She talks to Rose as a sort of grown up, the person she can rely on. And Iris is like her slightly messy, disorganized little baby. And then that goes through the whole film, uh, you know, as their characters sort of interact with each other. And I think Rose really treats Iris like that too. I mean, she really um, infantilizes her and really part of this is her journey. It's not central to, to the storytelling, but part of it is her needing to let her sister grow up as well too and to um, stop treating her sister like a baby, which it does beautifully by the end of the film. But that the way their houses are um, illustrated really does, it's a, a sort of beautiful visual metaphor of how different their two characters are too. You all right then? Yeah. Are you? I'm fine. Are you sure you're okay? Yeah. You look like a slut. Thank you. Thank you so much for introducing me to Under the Skin, but I'm curious as to why Karen Adler didn't make another film. This is, feels like such a strong debut, well-received from critics. It won prizes, uh, you know, Edinburgh Film Festival and Toronto Film Festival, and, uh, and you know, helped, I, I'm sure, launch Samantha Morton's wonderful career. But I, I don't know if you, if you sort of know what happened next for Karen Adler. I don't. It's a mystery. It really is a mystery. And I think at least part of it has to be um, the difficulty of getting second features made, particularly for female filmmakers. Um, but, uh, you know, that might not have been all of it, but it's it's interesting. And it's, it's sad because she's such a talented filmmaker and this, you know, shows so much promise, as does the short film Fever that we discussed as well. We'll, we'll sort of get onto it in a little bit, but we, we do like to talk about how we might present these films to an audience. And I would love to see Karen Adler talk about this film now on stage at a Q&A or, or something to revisit this work. Definitely. I mean, the ICA did a, like a sort of revival screening in 2016. Um, and Karen talks, you can find that online. So if anyone who wants to hear her talk a little bit more about the work, um, it, it's there. But I I would, I agree with you. I'd like a sort of deep, deep dive a Criterion Collection treatment here. This film actually is crying out for the Criterion uh, treatment as well. There is a DVD available. It's a very old DVD. It's thankfully available on the BFI player, a godsend for films like this and, and being a home for them. But I would love a nice restoration. That would be incredible. And an interview with Karen, an interview with Sam. Another interesting story that I heard when I was um, preparing to talk to you was that Sam, because she was really young and it was really early for her. They did, she was really, she saw um, the cut, the first cut of the film. She was really, really proud of her work in the film. But then they had a cast and crew screening and 
her boyfriend at the time, who was an actor, um, naming no names, came to the screening with her. And after the screening, um, apparently really upset her by saying it was a pornographic film. She shouldn't have been in it, that it was going to harm her career. And she went through a period of really, that really dented her confidence in how, what, you know, it, or it appeared to have dented her confidence. She got upset after the screening. Um, I've heard that she's very proud of it, as she should be. But it would be really, really wonderful to hear her um, and Kate and Karen go back and revisit um, the making of this film. It feels like a really landmark film in British cinema to me. Absolutely. I, I think it's a, it's a really important piece. And it's it's not completely obscure but it it's not as as known as it should be i don't think and and Definitely. uh you, you sort of have to seek it out it isn't i haven't really seen it included on many sort of canonical lists or or screened very often at all or you know, apart from the ica screening you mentioned you know it feels like this one should be a bit more available and, and the conversation should should focus on this more i do think if contemporary viewers saw this film they would really dig it as well that's the that's the real thing it isn't like oh you know you're gonna have to struggle through this film it's a great film and i, and I think actually it holds up and, and people would enjoy it so let's make this film more available put that out into the, into the universe <laughs> absolutely and you know maybe it also I, I don't think this is a real factor but of course there, there's a um better known under the skin that came a few years later jonathan glazer's absolutely glorious film which isn't under 90 minutes is it so we can't we can't do a double bill in your festival can we, Sam? Sadly not. I don't think Jonathan Glazer... Oh, no, Jonathan Glazer has made an under-90-minute film. Sexy Beast, we've covered it. Um, so Jonathan Glazer has got an under-90-minute film in him. Sadly, I think his Under the Skin is two hours long, although... I do. I found a couple of amusing things about that. One, if you look for Karen Adler's Under the Skin on Letterboxd, there are a lot of reviews going, I thought Scarlett Johansson was in this film, uh, which is brilliant. <laughs> uh, but the other thing I was thinking about, I wonder how much, not that the themes are too similar at all. That film focuses on an alien who comes to Glasgow, but... <laughs> it's also about trauma. But also about trauma, similar themes in some way. There are sexual encounters and and I think the fur coat feel and the wig feel both feel like they may have been taken from Karen yeah. Adler's under the skin. Uh, do you know what? Maybe they were maybe they were homages to um, Karen's under the skin. Could could be. It could be. As we sort of come come to an end, how has how has your relationship with this film changed over the years? You say you saw this at the cinema, you know, when you were a student, and when we're talking about this today, is is this something that you've been you know banging the drum for and, and championing over your over your career? No, I don't think so. I mean, I've always loved it. I've, my um, appreciation for it has never wavered, but I you know, blown away at the time. And it's always when asked about, you know, key moments in British cinema, it's a film I always talk about because it feels really important to me. But really recently um, I rewatched it, maybe when it went on the BFI player, I rewatched it again and just it reignited my interest in it. And then getting to deep dive into it here has made me fall in love with it all over again as, uh, and reading about it a little bit as well too. And, and also that sort of close viewing that you don't always do the first, the first time is like, everybody watches differently but I usually am like impacted emotionally the first time and the sort of formal qualities work uh, subliminally and going back and like really looking carefully at it formally um, I've realized how sophisticated and beautiful it is for all the reasons that we we spoke about here and how 
how the storytelling is really sort of complex and interesting. That's been a pleasure. So thank you to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Festival for making me fall in love with this film all over again. As we come to the end of the podcast, we always like to ask our guests, you know, if you could screen this film to an audience, how would you like to present it? Is there a particular cinema you feel like this would feel at home in? Um, are there any elements from the film you might like to bring out and uh, you know, present to the audience? Uh, I don't know if there's a way we could theme the cinema around Under the Skin, but but maybe we can give it a go. Uh, absolutely. I've got the perfect cinema for it. And I just was there last night. So I um, would go to the Garden Cinema in Covent Garden, which is a gorgeous subterranean new cinema, um, red velvets, lots of low lights. It really just feels like the right place to see this. And then I maybe I would invite all of the audience to... Maybe we build little masks at the beginning of the audience for of of Rose and Claire, and you can decide whether to be Rose or Claire or Rita. It's, you know, some eventize it. Um, but then definitely, I, as we talked about, I'd really love to have a Q and A afterwards with Samantha Martin and Kate Ogborn and Karen Adler. Maybe we'll invite Barry Aykroyd to come back and Eva Lind, who did beautiful editing in this film, and um, and. We're going to have. I think Scarlett Johansson is going to um, is going to host the Q and A. She's game. She 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 took the coat and the wig. Um, so that's her fee uh, to Karen Adler and the Under the Skin <laughs> at ninety seven team. Am I hoping that Scarlett Johansson has seen it and was inspired? But if she hasn't. You know, let's show the film to Scarlett Johansson. She'll dig this. Definitely. I think I, I can't believe that she hasn't seen it. I was sort of thinking of other things maybe from the film we could bring in. And I think the music is is so like late 90s Britain, that sort of techno electronic soundtrack. And maybe we could play that in the foyer and, and as people are in their seats waiting for the, the film to start. Yeah, good that you brought up the music because I think that's the watching it again. That's the only thing that really situates it in a particular um, time period period i think is that that music so yeah let's play that in the foyer as people come in i mean i think this film is, is beautiful and i would love to see it you know maybe presented from 35 mil or you know a, a more sort of high definition format on a big screen um so yeah this would be great i'll be there front row fantastic i'll see i'll sit beside you thank you so much uh, for talking to us today trisha it's been it's been a real honor and, and we've been talking about doing this podcast for a little while now so i'm so glad uh, that you've come on i've always wanted to talk to a festival a film festival director on this podcast um you know because we're doing it i guess in theory but you've done it for real um so you know we're, we're picking up some tips along the way uh, so hugely hugely appreciate your time uh, where can people stay up to date with what you're uh, what you're working on next are you on social media i am on twitter yes under the um sort of code name trisha tuttle <laughs> nice and discreet love to see it <laughs> yeah, exactly. until until twitter implodes i'll be i'll be found there Thank you so much, Sam. It's been it's been an aspiration of mine to come on to the show. Um, I love it so much. So thank you, and thanks to you and Louise for the great work on this show. There are not enough opportunities to do a deep dive into um, a film, so this feels really. I, I love the format of the show. So thank you for that. That's very kind. And, and listeners, if you do want to see Under the Skin, like we said, it is available on DVD and on BFI Player. So um, if you haven't seen it yet, please, please go and watch it. It's a big recommendation from both of us. Cool. Thanks, Trisha. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on your podcatcher of choice so you'll never miss an episode. You can also leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and if you have a moment, why not share an episode with your friends? Every recommendation helps. You can contact us on our website, 90minfilmfest.com, and you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at 90minfilmfest. The podcast is produced by me, Sam Clement, and Louise Owen. It's edited by Louise Owen, with sound mixing and additional editing by Luke Smith. Our music is by Martin Ostwick, and our artwork is by Sam Gilby. Enjoy those shorter films, folks. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. We're a proud member of the Stripped Media Network. 